Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. James P. Grant is not a household name, but he most certainly should be. Grant led UNICEF from 1979 until his death in 1995, and as Nick Kristof once wrote, he probably saved more lives than were destroyed by Hitler, Stalin, and Mao combined. He was a force in the UN bureaucracy and on the international stage, and now, for the first time, there's a full accounting of his life and work in the new biography titled A Mighty Purpose, How UNICEF's James P. Grant Sold the World on Saving Its Children. On the line with me to discuss Grant, his life, and work is author Adam Fifield. Fifield describes how Grant spearheaded what is now known as the child survival revolution of the 1980s. This led to, among other things, the quadrupling of worldwide childhood immunization rates. And Fifield vividly describes how Grant accomplished this achievement and many others on behalf of children of the world, often through sheer force of nature. And he did so up to the very moment of his death. He wanted to basically use his own death as a motivating force to get President Clinton to to, uh, sign the treaty. So I think it was on Friday. He died on uh, Saturday, if I'm not mistaken. And he came up with this letter. Mary Cahill faxed it to to the White House at Jim Grant's memorial service. It was a couple of weeks later. Hillary Clinton was the speaker. And it was a very moving moment when she paid tribute to Grant. And then she announced to everyone there that the United States would indeed be signing the Convention on the Rights of the Child. His his last request had been answered. There's some great stories in this book, which was just published in October, so go check that out. A quick programming note, those of you who are subscribed to the podcast on iTunes might have experienced a surge of episodes downloaded to your device. That's because I recently unlocked about 70 older shows, making them available to everyone for free. So go for that long car ride, and I know we are still in marathon season, and improbably, I know that a few of you out there have told me that you listen to this podcast while training for a marathon, so now there are many more hours of interesting conversations for your enjoyment. And as always, feel free to email me with suggestions or comments or provocations. You can find me on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now here is my conversation with author Adam Fifield about former UNICEF executive director, James P. Grant. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Jim Grant was an American World War II veteran, lawyer, and international aid expert. Uh, He became the third head of UNICEF on January 1st, 1980, and led the organization uh, until his death from cancer in 1995. He launched what he called the Child Survival Revolution, which is credited with saving the lives of, of tens of millions of children 
and really with redefining what was considered possible in global health and international development. Uh, some people feel Jim Grant was the most effective leader in the UN's entire history. Uh, even more importantly, he was probably the greatest advocate for children uh, the world has ever seen. I mean, he put children on the map and he made children the integrating catalyst for global health and international development. It's it's hard to name anyone who did more to advance the cause of children than Jim Grant. Well, so why isn't he a, a household name? That's a very good question. Uh, I mean, one one re- and I don't know I don't know the full reason for that. I think part of it might be that certainly among the American population, I mean, that the the children that that he and UNICEF and their many partners set out to help and whose lives they set out to to save were mainly non-white children. Uh, from Africa and Asia and Latin America, children who who might not be on the radar screen of of people certainly in in the United States. Um, so I think that's that's one reason. Jim Grant was also very a very liberal spreader of credit. Um, he gave a lot of of other people credit for some of the things that 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 he helped set in motion. So that might be part of it as well. You know, it's also funny. Like, so I kind of do this for a living, and I'm thinking to myself, how many executive directors of UNICEF can I name? So I can go the first one, Maurice Pate, uh, and then I can do uh, Jim Grant, uh, frankly because of this book, uh, and I can do Carol Bellamy and uh, Tony Lake, Anthony Lake, who's probably the highest profile one of them all from a political standpoint. He was Bill Clinton's former national security uh, advisor, and now he's currently the executive director. But I think I sort of answered my own question. I mean, I, I do this for a living, and I couldn't name all of them. Yeah, well, you, you've named most of them. I mean, I think, you know... Uh, oh, Henry, thank you. Okay, so I'm, I'm good at my job. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you are. Henry Henry Labouise was the second, and then Ann Veneman came oh, after... Oh, Ann Veneman, right, right. Then Tony Lake, yeah. And oh, Tony, sorry, did I say Carol Bellamy? Uh, she was... Uh, she she was a was was a, the came after Veneman right? She came after Grant. After Grant, she came after Grant, and then right. Veneman, and, and Veneman, then and, and, and Anthony Tony. Lake. Okay. Yeah, uh, and I think Tony Lake is doing a very good job. I mean, he's and certainly yeah, he is the uh, uh, certainly politically probably the most high high profile one, and he 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 knew Jim Grant, um, which is which is good. He, I think he he knew him and helped uh, when Jim Grant. Um, released the State of the World's Children at the White House um, in the early '90s. Tony Lake, I think, helped facilitate that. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, yeah. so so let's let's turn back the clock a little bit. So, yeah. where was Jim Grant born? Tell me a little bit about his family background. Uh, sure. So he he was born in China uh, in 1922. Uh, his father um, was then working for the Rockefeller Foundation in China. His father was John Black Grant, and he was. Uh, a major pioneer in in global health in his own right, um, and actually uh, came up with a healthcare model that became the basis for the barefoot doctor movement you know, years later. I don't know what that is. Can you describe that? Because you know you're talking about someone being a global health pioneer in the 1920s. I'm not entirely sure what that means. So the idea being basically that that uh, um, communities should be empowered to provide healthcare on their own, um, on their own terms, and uh, that people in those communities should be trained and equipped to be midwives and nurses and should be, should be trained to um, provide healthcare and not, not be dependent on urban hospitals and on sort of Western, Western hospitals. I think that was the, the basic idea. Um, and Jim Grant's father was a big proponent of that and, and actually put it into practice with, with several Chinese doctors uh, in uh, China. It was part of a Rockefeller uh, um, program. Um, 
in the in the 1920s. And Jim Grant grew up in China. He lived there for 15 years until 1937, when the Japanese invaded uh, China. And there's a scene in the book, and he he talks about this in his oral history. He was camping with a bunch of um, Boy Scouts near the Marco Polo Bridge uh, outside of um, Peking, and they thought it was a thunderstorm. They heard loud booms, but there was no rain, and they wondered what it was. And then pretty quickly, they 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 realized that that they were being invaded. <laughs> that it was the you know Japanese um, you know coming in and starting, and they had already occupied other parts of China, I think, but. Um, uh, this was the beginning of the second, I think, uh, Sino-Japanese War. And so shortly after that, Jim Grant uh, and his mother and sister uh, fled. They left. Um, and then he ended up he ended up uh, spending a year with some family friends in Massachusetts. And then he ended up going to high school. Uh, his, his mother moved to Berkeley, California. Uh, and he ended up going to high school there and ended up going to the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, he ended up, um, uh, going to Harvard law school, but a lot of other things happened in between. He was, uh, um, uh, he enlisted in the army in world war II and fought in the Pacific theater. Uh, and after world war II, uh, he worked for UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, um, delivering aid mainly to communist areas, uh, areas during the civil war in China. Uh, he then, he, he, pra- he did, he did private practice for Covington and Burling for a few years. And then after that, really his, his career was, was entirely in international development. I mean, much of it with USAID. Um, but this is before USAID even existed, right? This, right. So this was when it was, I think it was ECA and ICA, um, the, the internet, uh, the economic, uh, cooperation administration, I think, right. It was before it was called USAID, uh, uh, he worked for, he was an assistant, uh, he was a deputy um, secretary of state under John F. Kennedy for a mm-hmm. few years. Uh, in 19, I think it was 1969, he helped, uh, he, he became the head of a progressive global um, development think tank in Washington, D.C. called the Overseas Development Council. Uh, they, he, they don't exist anymore. I've never heard of them. No, they don't exist anymore. No, no, and they 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 were a real voice for 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 human human development. Mm-hmm. Well, it's so interesting. I mean, like the the you know right these days, international development USAID is a multi billion dollar business. Uh, back then, it, it was not. It was just so um, just so so nascent, right, in its development. Right, right. I mean, and 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 obviously, it was dominated a lot by the Cold War as well. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, it's it's. I think it's changed a huge to to a huge degree. Jim Jim Grant was one of the proponents again of, of when and when when he was at the Overseas Development Council, he and and others there came up with something called the the Physical Quality of Life Index, the PQLI, I think it was called. And and the idea behind this was that uh, develop success and development should be measured not just by GDP but by child health, by maternal health, by literacy, um, by human, human barometers, you know, and human welfare. So he was a huge proponent uh, of, of that strain of thinking in development. So how did he become uh, the head of UNICEF? How did, uh, now it's traditional that, the, that an American is, is head of UNICEF because the U.S. is the largest single donor to right. UNICEF, which funds itself primarily through voluntary contributions of its member states. So, so right. an American generally is head of UNICEF. How did he get the nod? How, how did that happen? 
Right. No, and, and American always has been. Uh, well, he was he was nominated um, nominated by by President Carter, and I I believe he actually had been originally nominated years earlier by Gerald Ford. Jim Jim Grant was uh, was on the board of UNICEF um, for several years, uh, and uh, uh, I think it was. And and I don't go into too much detail on this in the book, but. Um, yeah, there was some a lot of behind the scenes tussling over, over, over this, and and it's not a very transparent process. I don't think it is even now, uh, and I think there there been there's been a lot of criticism about that about how the head of UNICEF gets gets the the job. So he was essentially appointed by by I'm sorry nominated by President um, Carter, uh, and um, the. Board of UNICEF, I think, went back and forth, but he was eventually appointed by Secretary General Kurt Waldheim in 1979. So what did UNICEF, the UNICEF that he was entering, look like? I mean, there was, I don't know if in your research you read this amazing profile of Maurice Pate that was written in The New Yorker in the early 1960s. I did, I did. Isn't that a great, it's called The Heart of UNICEF. If you guys, anyone out there has a New Yorker subscription, you can go back and look at the archives. It's called The Heart of UNICEF is the name of the article. And it's just in a really astounding and really interesting, um, you know, it's, it's like a classic New Yorker profile, but in profiling Maurice Pate, the first executive director, they discuss the history of, of UNICEF, which I found totally fascinating. Basically, it has its roots um, in post-war Europe, right, as a relief agency. And it's really one of the first emergency relief agencies that was able to work uh, in a war zone or uh, across a war zone. Right. And it was it was only intended to be a temporary, a temporary agency at first anyway. It was never intended to be a permanent UN agency. And I, I probably the best source of information on on this are, are Maggie Black's books about about UNICEF. She she has a really a fantastic account of of the early days of UNICEF and the del- delivery of milk powder and and um helping children in in Europe and in and in China. Um Maurice Maurice Pate was 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 a was an extraordinary and very from what I can gather a very self-effacing guy. Um and without, I mean, without his leadership, UNICEF would never have would never have survived. I don't think so. Um, and Hubert Humphrey, in, incidentally, which is so interesting to me that yeah, Hubert Humphrey was just an ex president at that point, just was a patron of the idea of UNICEF. Absolutely, and he was involved in the creation of it. Yeah, he was. I mean, as was Fiorello Laguardia as well, um, which is which is interesting. Uh, and I mean, one of the most compelling characters. At at that time is a guy named Ludwig Rockman, um, and I think he must come up in that New Yorker profile. His last name is spelled R A J C H M A N, a Polish um, doctor uh, who ran the League of Nations Health Section, if I'm correct. And um, he he's considered to be the founder of UNICEF. I mean, he uh, and and there are several accounts of this. But I mean, when when the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration was being disbanded. He basically made the case: we well, shouldn't, you know, these these monies, the funds, should be used to create a fund for children because many children are still suffering. The job's not done yet. We have a lot. To, we have a lot. You know, there, there, there's still a great need out there. Uh, and, and so uh, he he he's sort of, and he's a he's a real uh, interesting character. And he actually knew Jim Grant's father, which is interesting. Hmm. Um, Jim Grant met Ludwig Rockman when he was a boy. Ludwig Rockman was a house guest of the Grants in China. 
which is which is sort of an interesting Fun coincidence. Certain, yeah. Um, so so UNICEF, you know, started as as an emergency relief agency. How did it evolve in the years uh, following World War II and up to Grant's uh, nomination? And I, you know, I only I only uh, maybe devote two pages to this, and, and I, I should just say that the best again the best source of information on that is is Maggie Black and, and her books. Um, um, but UNICEF grew from yeah UNICEF grew from a became a permanent uh, uh, UN agency, I think, in 1953. Um, and then it, it, its mandate broadened from, from humanitarian relief to broader development. Um, I, and I think there, there, there are several figures, you know, there are several figures and several leaders. And, and I'm, uh, again, Maggie, Maggie Black is the best source of this, who, who really advocated for the, con- for the continuation of UNICEF because, um, uh, you know, uh, Beyond humanitarian relief and beyond emergencies, there were children that were suffering from poverty, which was a, an emergency in its own right, and um, malnutrition. And so there were, and I think there was, and I'm I'm forgetting um, his name now, but there was a very pivotal leader, uh, who, who world world leader who who made who made the case for for UNICEF to um, um, continue. I think in the 1950s and to broaden its scope. So. So UNICEF um, became more of a development agency. It embraced education. Um, it 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 started to you know to look at things like prenatal care and midwives and support training. It started to you know to, to support the the training of health workers and midwives uh, in various countries. And and it became during the 1960s and 70s. It also became part of the development movement. And and it tried to uh, I think uh, a factor. Um, development into its into its mission, um, and 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 to and to make a place for um, for UNICEF's role uh, in the development crusade during during that time. So, what were some of Jim Grant's first challenges after taking the helm of UNICEF? What what sort of environment did he encounter? What policy priorities did he have? Uh, so he. he came in in 1980 and UNICEF at this point I, I I should also make the case was a very respected UN agency at this point it had won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1965 um, it had done a lot of really really important things it had you know delivered aid on uh, both sides of of um, the Civil War in northern Nigeria it had um, uh, you know uh, helped children in a lot of very difficult situations um, and so he he came in and and really hit hit UNICEF like a nor'easter. I mean, he, uh, and I think he made a lot of people uneasy because he came in and he, 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 uh, told people that we need to shift gears. Uh, we need to do more with less. Uh, we're only a handful of people with a pocket full of coins. Uh, we can't change the world with that. Uh, we need to do more and we need to do it faster. Um, and some people thought that he was crazy and that he didn't really appreciate all of the things that UNICEF had already done. I should also mention some of that I that I that I don't mention in the book that was very who was very important um, to to UNICEF before Jim Grant was a guy named Dick Hayward and he was not he was a deputy executive um, director um, and really helped to build up UNICEF's field structure uh, before before Jim Grant and he was he was very important to to UNICEF's success. Um, uh, before the Jim Grant era, but so Jim Jim Grant came in and and you know wanted to do these big bold things, and I think he made a lot of people uneasy, and he didn't for this for the first really the first year and a half he didn't really have, uh, he he wasn't quite sure how he was going to do that, um, and I think I talk in the book about how you know there were a few missteps at first um, 
there was a, he wanted to, one idea he had was to create sort of this, this, um, uh, core of experts at UNICEF and to, to come up with these game changing ideas in development and to, uh, I think it was kind of derisively referred to as giving UNICEF a brain and people yeah. like, right. Like you have, there's, there's this quip, right. That you quote in the book. What is it like the world bank? Um, or you, you tell it. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a, there's a, there's a joke. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a joke that I think has been circulating for years um, right. in at the UN, and I think even Hofdan Mahler may have even mentioned this joke himself. But that the joke is that uh, within the UN system, uh, uh, UNICEF knows nothing but does everything. Uh, the World Health Organization knows everything but does nothing, and then uh, and maybe this is unfair. The UNDP knows nothing and does nothing. Um, uh, but that that was a, that was a joke that was sort of you know circulating um, around and 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 it's a joke that I heard I I had briefly I, I had worked for for many years actually at the U.S. Fund for UNICEF and had heard that joke myself. Um, so uh, yeah, but I mean Jim 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 Grant I mean apparently wanted UNICEF to to do everything and know everything, and th- that that plan didn't didn't go over so well. He also planned he also proposed a huge um, uh, expansion of staff that that was rejected by. Uh, his 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 board was essentially told told to go back to the to the drawing table you know to the to the drawing board and come up with a new a new idea. So it wasn't until 1982, um, uh, after consulting with his with his friend John Rohde, that that the idea for the for Gobi and the Child Survival Revolution was born. I should tell I should say what I should. Yeah, I mean, so this is this was right. This is his key innovation, right? The Child Survival Revolution and and Gobi. Uh, yeah, and this is what Jim Grant uh, is, is is is. This is how he probably changed the world uh, more, most yeah, dramatically. Would you say? I would say that, but he's also he's he's he he did a lot more than that. I mean, I would say that was that was the first big thing that he. Did. So so let's talk through that. What is Gobi? It's an Gobi. acronym because you know it's the UN. The UN loves acronyms. They love acronyms, um, and I think it was an acronym that was made fun of um, too at at the time. Uh, but it it stands for it stands for the four interventions. Uh, that that he and 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 he had a meeting um, in the fall of uh, 1982 where um, uh, John Rohde and other people and many other people from the World Bank and others were convened to kind of come up with a strategy for moving forward and what what resulted uh, was this plan um, uh, to pursue these four interventions: growth monitoring, oral rehydration salts, breastfeeding, and immunization. Um, stands for Gobi. Um, some people made fun of it and said it reminded them of the Gobi Desert, and uh, um, uh, and uh, and those four interventions though are are fairly low cost, fairly um, you know low hanging fruit, but had at that point not widely been on UNICEF's agenda. They 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 had been, but but uh, and UNICEF certainly had been um, supporting immunization campaigns before this. But the immunization rate globally was still pretty low; it was still around twenty percent. Um, and and I should I should also I should I should back up and just say two things that, um, uh, in terms of immunization, the process really began with the World Health Organization, nineteen seventy four, when they. They founded the expanded program on immunization, which grew out of the smallpox eradication initiative, and they targeted six diseases: uh, diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, polio, measles, and tuberculosis. That they were going to go after, and if if, if they could have success with smallpox, the thought was 
you know they could they could have success um, tackling these other diseases uh, as well. And they did have some some you know, uh, uh, you know there was some progress, but it was slow progress. There was a guy there named Ralph Henderson who really was a very dynamic fellow at the World Health Organization. Um, but but as of the early 1980s, the immunization rates um, they ha- they had gone up, but they were still in the in the 20 percent range. Um, so. So that was one area. And Grant at first wasn't necessarily sold on immunization being one of these four things. It apparently took some convincing um, that this was actually a good way, um, a good way to reach everyone. And I should, I should also back up, too, and explain that a lot of this began with John Rohde, Dr. John Rohde. He's an American pediatrician, and he had written a paper called Why the Other Half Dies. Uh, and it was an examination of what you just said, that, that, that there are... Um, uh, uh, m- you know, millions of children that die every year, but there are available remedies that could save many of these children. And in other words, many of those deaths are simply preventable. They don't have to happen. So, uh, uh, there has to be a bridge built between what is a, what science knows. This is what Jim Grant would say and what people need. And, um, and, uh, John Rohde met Jim Grant in China, I think right before Jim Grant started working for UNICEF during a Rockefeller trip in 1979, they began talking about these things and these ideas began germinating in Jim Grant's head. Uh, John Rohde then sent Jim Grant a copy of this paper. Um, I think in 1982, it was a lecture he had, uh, um, delivered. And that's what I think what really triggered, you know, all of this. Uh, and, uh, and, and John, John, John Rohde has told me that, that for Jim Grant, um, his real motivation uh, was not even saving kids. It wasn't immunization. It was basically to reach everyone and to show that you could reach everyone um, with with basic interventions. So that's the sort of his his intellectual formulation. But how did he go about uh, implementing that vision and achieving that vision? So I mean, it was it was he 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 built a what he called a grand alliance for children. Um, uh, NGOs and donors and, you know, uh, uh, private corporations and obviously government, government ministries and government immunizers. And I mean, did he do it like through force it, of his personality? Yeah. And I mean, the, the main thing he did was, was convincing heads of state to mobilize, uh, their governments to take better care of kids, to launch immunization campaigns, to spend their money. I mean, he would say, uh, he would say to people at UNICEF, you know, look, we're, I think as I, I mentioned this 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 quote earlier. We're a handful of people with a pocket full of coins, uh, so we're not going to change the world with UNICEF's budget. We need to get other people to spend their money. But the uh, issue, right, is that this was the Reagan era, an era of austerity and of of deep skepticism towards oh, the efficacy it, of it, government. It was a debt crisis, and it was it was a structural adjustment. Pro, I mean, it was a horrible time. And I think you have to understand the context that after the first two development decades, the nineteen eighties. Were were the law were considered to be the lost decade of development, and and Maggie Black and many other people have written about this. But you know, that, it, it was an extremely difficult situation um, that Jim Grant and you know came came into. And in terms of launching a huge ambitious program like this in this kind of in this kind of scenario in this kind of um, set of circumstances, I, I think some people thought he was he was crazy, um, and many people felt that the gains some of the gains had been, that had been made in the sixties and seventies in terms of child mortality and other things would be reversed. And in fact, in in some places in sub-Saharan Africa, they were being reversed. Um, so so he 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 came in and launched this this uh, this really bold initiative uh, against unbelievable obstacles. Did the Reagan administration support him? Nominally, but I, 
you know, Reagan, uh, I think, uh, I think I, I, I mentioned in the book that, that, that he, um, endorsed the child survival revolution when it was first launched, but, uh, I don't think he was a significant source of support financially. No. So who supported it? How, I mean, if, if you didn't get the, the big gun, the USA to do it, who else, well, uh, rallied say, to the support? Yeah, I, I should say that the USA continued to support UNICEF and, you know, continued to be UNICEF's donor. But I think it was really, it was really mobilizing the heads, you know, he, he, he got heads of state around the world uh, to mobilize their governments. And he also, he also ha- had this um, uh, uh, strategy called social mobilization. So it wasn't once you got the buy-in of the head of state, um, you, you know, the UNICEF staff on the ground would then, with, with their partners and a lot of NGO partners, would then work um, to to create uh, uh, this um, demand for immunization, and also to you know to mobilize the whole society. So Boy Scouts were involved. The Catholic Church was pivotal to a lot of what Jim Grant did, certainly in Latin America. Uh, uh, NGOs like uh, the you know the the Bangladesh Rural Advancement Committee, Faisal Abed's group, was absolutely pivotal to a lot of the success in ba- in Bangladesh. Um, so getting NGOs, getting schools, getting um, churches, mosques. Uh, uh, labor unions, getting every sort of every facet of society involved, um, and and it, and it really did become a bottom-up initiative in in that sense, um, because a lot of people rallied around these these huge immunization campaigns and or rehydration campaigns, uh, so that so that um, more and more children could be reached and that parents could be empowered to uh, to save their kids. Is there uh, any estimates of, of how many uh, people were reached and, and of, of what kind of change this revolution brought? Like, did, like how quickly did immunization rates increase? Yeah, and I, I talk about this in um, the book, and um, there, there, are, um, there are varying sources on this, but there's the, the World Health Organization, I think, keeps track of, of immunization rates uh, and and uh, on their website you can you can you can look and you can look and, and see the rates from 1980 until 1990, and uh, it's pretty remarkable because globally the rates for these for these six diseases it's four it's four vaccines right it's the DPT vaccines polio measles and tuberculosis vaccine uh, go from around 25 percent 20 to 25 percent to close to 80 percent in the space of less than 10 years. It's it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty um, amazing. Now that that those numbers mask some disparities because in some African countries it was a lot you know the progress was a lot less, um, but in some of those countries the rates went from nothing at all to fifty percent, which was a huge you know huge improvement. So uh, so the results were there. I mean and and, and the, it, it, it worked. Yeah, I mean and 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 uh, you know there's 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 a there's a question of how does that translate into child mortality rate and lives saved. UNICEF has a number that they have used that the child survival revolution uh, 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 saved an estimated 25 million um, children's lives. Um, and I think there's, there's, a, there's a, a statistic that was, that was used widely at the time, and I think it's still used, that, immu- that the gains in immunization by around 1990 were, were, were saving about 3 million lives every year. Oral rehydration salts were estimated to be saving, um, you know, the, the increased use of oral rehydration salts were estimated to save around a million lives um, a year. 
so yeah, I think the results were definitely there. And there's, there's also, I mean, if, if you look, and I don't have this in front of me, I, I think I quote this in the book. It's a World Health Organization uh, chart that, that, that uh, tracks the incidence of, of certain diseases from 1980 until 1990. And, and some of them plummeted. I mean, the, you know, measles and polio uh, uh, you know, cases plummeted during that time. So clearly that had a huge impact. Um, also in your book, you cite the Child Survival Summit as one of the crowning achievements of Jim The World Grant. Summit for Children, yeah. What, what is that? So what was that summit? Uh, and can you, you know, just kind of tell us the story of, of what it was and, and how it was achieved and why Grant um, so personally intervened in, in making it happen and, and found it necessary to have something like this? Yeah, so it was. It was the at the time it was the biggest meeting of of, of heads of state ever held, uh, and um, I think it was even it was even put in the Guinness Book of World Records. Um, and this was the ni- this was in 1990 at the UN, September 1990, almost exactly uh, 25 years ago, right? Uh, and the World Summit for Children um, uh, uh, was a was a, um, a, a big meeting. Uh, seven, I think it was, and I don't have the, I think it was 70, more than 70 heads of state and then representatives from, um, from many other governments came to the UN and made a pledge to do some very specific things to improve the health and welfare of children around the world. Uh, there were, uh, I think it was 27 uh, uh, specific goals uh, that, uh, that, that, that these leaders committed to um, um, pursuing, and it was everything from cutting child mortality to fighting maternal uh, uh, deaths to eradicating guinea worm to iodizing salt, um, and they were very specific and they were time bound. And those those goals really became the basis for the Millennium Development Goals, and in turn for the Sustainable Development Goals. This I, and so Jim 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 Grant really inspired um, the use of of time bound measurable you know measurable goals within within the UN system. Um, that's where this um, now th- there were goals before this, but but um, you know there's a saying at the UN goals are ever set and never met. Uh, and the hardest part is the follow up. So Jim Jim Grant was a pest, right? He was he was a nudge. I mean, after the World Summit for Children, it was this giant. It was this, and it was this very it was this very dramatic event. Um, uh, and it and it snarled traffic on first on First Avenue for hours, and all these they, it was it, it required very meticulous planning to get all these heads of state and all of their caravans uh, of you know limos uh, processed within minutes of each other at the United Nations. Um, and uh, but the real meat of it were these were these goals that resulted, and and the and the real significance was in the you know subsequent. Five years when Jim Grant spent the last five years of his life, um, um, you know, pushing these world leaders to keep their to keep their promises. And uh, and as of 1996, I think I I quote um, a report that Butrus Butrus Ghali uh, released on the World Summit for Children goals. And the progress was really quite quite extraordinary, even during the first you know five years uh, after Jim Grant died. It obviously petered out a bit, but, um, but, uh, you know, the real work is obviously in the follow through, uh, I think being one of the biggest lessons from that. Um, so you cite in, in the book frequently Jim Grant's sort of larger than life personality and how that would manifest when he would, you know, visit UNICEF projects in places like Somalia. Um, what was a visit from Jim Grant like to a, a UNICEF field operation? 
I mean, it was a whirlwind. It was nonstop. Uh, it was the minute he touched down to the minute he left. It was constant, uh, dizzying stream of activity. Uh, and and he, you know, he he really loved talking to people. He loved, you know, uh, picking up kids, and he loved talking to moms. And so he would he was always late because he would always sit down and talk to people. Um, and he would and he would administer you know polio vaccines, and he would weigh children in the weighing scales, and he. Uh, he would even he would join in with with uh, performances that children were giving and clap and sing along with them, um, and, but he would drive his staff very very hard, um, and it was just meeting after meeting after meeting. And then the I think at, at the tail end of one of those um, field visits, what what many people have told me, it would it would be often an all night uh, session of thank you note writing, and he would he would stay up almost all night, and he would. Um, and I don't know if this happened at every visit, but it happened with a lot of them. And he would expect several people to stay up all night with him. And they would, and again, this is about follow-up. They would write, after having met with all of these, with, with presidents, with, with government ministers who had pledged to do certain things, they would write thank you notes to them. And they weren't just notes of courtesy. They were really notes reminding them of all of the specific things that they had you know, um, promised to do. And saying, I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to hold you to this. Right. So there were these long, long letters and Jim Grant would stay up uh, with people and they would write these thank you notes so that he could sign them before he flew out the next morning at six, at 6 a.m. Um, the, the power of the thank you note. The power of the thank you note. So, so, uh, so that's what a, so a Jim Grant f- field visit I think was exhilarating, but it was also exhausting for those who were involved with it. Um, so he, he, uh, had cancer during the later years of yeah. his uh, tenure uh, at UNICEF. What what happened? How how did that sickness manifest itself in in his work? Well, it, I mean, in 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 one way, it really didn't because he wouldn't let it. I mean, he he um, he barely mentioned it, uh, and some people I think didn't even really know that he had cancer. Um, he kept he kept he just kept working, and I think I have a scene. Um, uh, I just that 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 Peter Adamson uh, mentioned to me where he he went with Jim Grant to get uh, radiation treatment, and it was not at all a, a major event for Jim Grant. The whole while he was talking about the state of the world's children reports and what was going to happen over the next couple of days, and it was like he was going to a dentist visit. You know, he didn't uh, he. Um, uh, he did talk about it with close friends. He talked about it with John Rohde, who's a doctor, and, and I, I think almost sort of served as a personal physician for him and talked about it with his family, and he did mention it to his, to his uh, assistant, Mary Cahill. But, but to many people, he didn't even mention it. Uh, he, just kept, he just kept going, um, even when he was sick. Even I think his last, during his last year, he, he met with something like 40 heads of state. He was in, he was in extreme discomfort and a lot of pain, um, but... Uh, uh, there, there's a quote from Peter Adamson, and this is actually, this is from an anthology that UNICEF published about Jim Grant called, and it was edited by Richard Jolly called UNICEF Visionary. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but the essence of it was that, you know, it, it's, it might be a cliche to say that someone, um, uh, pursues a cause with every last breath in their body. But in Jim Grant's case, it was, it was, it was exactly true. It was exactly what he did. I mean, he worked until the the moment he died. And and how was his death um, felt uh, around the world? Um, what sort of um, recognition did he get, at least here in the United States, uh, for his his life's work? Well, he got a lot more 
in other countries, I think. I mean, I think he was he was recognized. Um, the the uh, the tributes that poured in um, for Jim Grant from Nelson Mandela, from you know from Nelson Mandela to Lee Peng to uh, uh, to you know people from all over the world um, were were extraordinary, and there there are dozens and dozens of them. I have a box of them here, uh, and um, uh, he was probably less recognized in the United States, honestly, than he was in other places. Uh, although I will say at his memorial service, um, Hillary Clinton was the, was the featured speaker, believe it or not. Uh, and, uh, this is sort of an interesting backstory that I think talks to the sort of the, 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 the zealous nature of Jim, Jim Grant's character and how he never really gave up his fight, um, for children. His last, uh, one of his last acts uh, as the, and I think he had even, he had even resigned. He, he resigned on January 23rd. He died on January 28th, uh, was uh, to write a thank you note to Bill Clinton, who was president at the time. Bill Clinton had sent him a note, one of the many tributes I was talking about that had come in and thanked him for his service. And so Jim Grant wanted to use that as leverage. So he, um, with Mary Cahill and others, they drafted a, uh, response to President Clinton. Um, it was sort of Jim Grant's deathbed request. And the idea be- behind it being how could how could President Clinton refuse a dying man's request? Um, but he wanted President Clinton to sign the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Uh, and uh, the U.S. had not signed it. Um, and the U.S. has still not ratified it to this day, but uh, had, had not signed it. And uh, he wanted to basically use his own death as as a, as a motivating force to get President Clinton to to uh, sign the the uh, treaty, so uh, I think it was on Friday. He died on uh, Saturday, if I'm not mistaken. And he um, uh, they came up with this letter. Mary Cahill faxed it to, faxed it to the White House uh, at Jim Grant's memorial service. It was a couple of weeks later. Hillary Clinton was the speaker, and it was a very moving mo- moment when she paid tribute to Grant, and then she announced to everyone there that the United States would indeed be signing the Convention on the Rights of the Child. His, his last request had been answered. Um, so it was sort of a cool story. Um, the, the sort of the follow-up to that story being that, that the, tr- the treaty has not been ratified mm-hmm. by the United States, has to be signed and ratified. Um, but the U.S. signed it sometime later in 1995. Uh, Madeleine Albright, I think, actually signed it. Yes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. signed signed the treaty. But uh, uh, the ratification process, I think, takes place so. in the Senate. And, and yes, they, yeah. yeah, it's one so, of like. Uh, well, it's the only country now because Somalia used to be the, it used to be the only country along with Somalia that hadn't ratified it. But Somalia, you know, now has a functioning government and ratified it. So the U.S. is pretty Somalia, much the only country now. You ratified it. It's yeah. Paid. I think it's pretty it's caught up. I mean, for those who aren't aware, it's, it's just kind of caught up in domestic American um, abortion politics, uh, partly, but also um, just sort of general isolationist views on the world. And, and it's a little little hard um, to, to, to contemplate. But yeah, the, the Senate has not, not ratified it. But that's an amazing story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that was that was he he. And what's what's interesting is that Jim Jim Grant was not immediately sold on the convention. I mean, he he had his reservations about it at first. He um, it wasn't part of the child survival revolution, and and uh, you know it 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 wasn't about vaccines. It wasn't about doable solutions. He was about you know doable solutions. But he was he was convinced by um, several um, staffers, including um, Allegro Morelli, uh, to to take on the convention. And once he got behind it. He became the biggest advocate for it ever, 
Um, and, and I, and I think was, it was a huge, was a huge force in getting it, getting it ratified in lots of different countries. Um, it became the most, I think the most quickly ratified human rights treaty, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Uh, well, Adam, I mean, thank you so much for writing this book for, for the story. Any other parting, uh, thoughts on, on Jim Grant, uh, that you wanted to, to get in there before we, we wrap up? I mean, I guess I would say that I, that I think, uh, just, just, I would just want to mention a few other things. I mean, I think his story, um, is more than anything else. It's about the power of optimism. Uh, it's about the power of setting audacious goals and then, you know, um, meeting those, those goals. And he actually did that. Um, and, and he, he sort of, uh, changed and many people say he changed the ethos of, of, um, global health and international development at the time. I think, um, one, uh, one way someone put it was he swept the impossibility away. He showed that great, great gains are indeed possible. Obviously, international development is a very complicated, flawed process. There's a lot of failures, um, but there are successes too. And, um, and there, there are ills in this world that can be stamped out. And, and, and Jim Grant proved that. Um, one analogy, and I'll just I'll close with this, um, that Peter Adamson um, shared um, was that, that the child survival revolution was in some ways about taking up the slack, uh, the slack being uh, the mass deaths uh, of children um, at, every year from preventable causes, that that simply didn't have to be there. No matter how well the rest of development um, uh, goes, that doesn't have to happen. And, and, and Jim Grant demonstrated that that doesn't have to happen, that these children can indeed be saved, that slack can be taken up. Um, and, and, uh, I think that was a very powerful thing. Jim, Jim Grant also had a very sophisticated grasp of international development as a whole. And, um, uh, uh, one other point, the child survival revolution was really phase one. Phase two was the world summer for children, this broader set of goals pursuing, pursuing, um, a lot of other, other things that he wanted to, he wanted to do. Sadly, that, that phase was cut short, um, by cancer in 1995. Um, but I think a lot of the progress that's happening right now has Jim Grant's fingerprints all over. All right. Well, well, Adam, thank you so much for this book and, and for your time and for, you know, making or helping to make James P. Grant a household name. He surely deserves it. Thanks for, thanks for um, talking to me. All right. Thank you all for listening. That was a lot of fun. Surely James P. Grant deserves to be a household name. Uh, Thank you to everyone who has left a review on iTunes. I really appreciate it. And it is a selfless act because it helps other people discover the podcast who are similarly interested in these kinds of issues. So again, thank you to those who have left a review and you've not already done so. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes. All right. We'll see you next time. Have some great, great episodes lined up in the very near future. So stay tuned. Bye.